Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. We're giving credit where credit is due, featuring songs originally recorded by one artist only to gain popular success later after being recorded by another artist. In part one, we're talking about soul singer Dee Dee Warwick and her original recording of You're No Good, more popularly sung by Linda Ronstadt. How's it going, Jason? Good, good, you know? So this week we're talking covers. Yeah. More specifically, we're talking about cover songs that kind of usurped the the notoriety or the popularity of an original recorded version. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a to- this is a topic that you came to me with. This is something that you kind of felt inspired by. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's 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 do it. <laughs> I mean, it's always fascinating to me. And I think the idea of credit is like such a, it's a hot button topic, like always, you know, it kind of surfaces regularly. Even on YouTube and TikTok, a lot of YouTube trends or a lot of TikTok trends, things that people do in their videos, sometimes they're originated by certain people, but then they're popularized by people with a larger following. And if they don't attribute that to the smaller creator, that smaller creator kind of gets lost in it, right? Yeah. Yeah, Stuff like a lot of the dance challenges on TikTok and stuff. I think, you know, a lot of those are originated by young black kids. Yeah. Yeah, I I am familiar with that. Yeah, But it's not it's not the young black kids that get the credit for those things. And the ones that get the most views are are not them. You know? Yeah. Yeah. People are really quick now, I think, to jump to the defense of people who have kind of creative ownership over that stuff. Mm. And it's interesting to look at our podcast through that lens of these songs that we're talking about where... The song that I'm covering, for example, I didn't even know that this song existed. I was kind of digging around when you brought the subject matter up to me. I was kind of like, oh, like, that's interesting. Like, what songs can I think of that fit that mold? And I stumbled upon this D.D. Warwick song that I didn't even realize was recorded by her. And it's mm-hmm. and it really is lost to the ages in that sense. Mm-hmm. No, same. You know, the, the song I'm doing by Patti LaBelle, it was fully... 20 years after she recorded it that like I discovered she was the original mm-hmm. because I love this song, but I always thought that Celine Dion's version was the original. And it's so easy to figure that stuff out now, but people yeah. have to understand that like in the eighties and nineties or all the way up to the eighties and nineties, it was really hard to figure that stuff out. Like what was the original version of a song? We didn't have this constant access to information. Yeah. It's just you, prior to this songs would come and go. And, it, 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 and, and in some cases, like, I think to be clear, you know, there's, there's, there's things like standards where everyone does them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and coming out of like, what do you call it? Like the, the songwriting houses or factories, the hit machine factories um, mm-hmm. of the sixties, like, you know, there were songs that for sure were covered by many people. And that's yeah. not really what we're talking about. We're talking about necessary. We're talking, I don't know. It's, it's slightly different where there's a song that was someone's and they do it basically exactly the same or they, or whatever. I don't know if that's, yeah, and I mean, how I, do I set it up? Yeah. I think that's definitely the case with Patty LaBelle. I think with the K with the song that I'm talking about, it definitely did more come from that era. Cause this is a yeah. song that's from the sixties where, yeah, like a lot of people were recording the same songs. I think it's interesting to delve into like why cover songs exist in the yeah. first place. Mm-hmm. From what I can see, the intent behind cover songs range from like mildly nefarious to like diabolical, right? Like there's like yeah. kind of a money-making aspect to it. There's kind of a racist aspect to it. But in this instance, one thing that I wanted to make sure when I was choosing a song for this week was that I actually did like mm. the original recording of this song that was unsuccessful better than the popularized recording of this song. And I think that's definitely the case with this Dee Dee Warwick song that I, that I decided to go with because there were other things that I was kind of going over in my head about like, Oh, what are the songs that I, I think about in this, in this vein? I think about, you know, the, the lady marmalade cover, Mm. the Christina pink (laughs) Maya and Lil Kim version produced by Missy Elliott that I found terribly disappointing uh, but also famously recorded by LaBelle originally. But then I was like, yeah. we can't do all, we can't both be doing LaBelle, Patty LaBelle stuff. Yeah. And then I was like, we were talking a little bit about if I were a boy, Beyonce, that that was famously recorded by someone else who was lesser known, whose label passed on that song for her. And then 
the co-writer of that song, Toby Gad, he actually just started shopping that song around without the other, without the original artist's knowledge, right? Like the original artist for that song didn't know that it was re-recorded by Beyonce until after mm-hmm. it came out. And they had to mm-hmm. kind of settle things out to appease her, I think. But it's my popular understanding that if you write a song or if you produce a song and Beyonce wants to put it on her album, you just let her do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And you let her and you let her take like a percentage of like a writing or a production credit because whatever you're losing by giving up a song is gained probably a hundredfold. Yeah. By giving it to Beyonce. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. Even if you let her take a percentage, whatever Beyonce can do with your song in terms of I mean, monetary gain. Yeah. It probably far outweighs. Yeah. Giving up a little bit of credit to Beyonce and then relinquishing that song from your own catalog, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there was that. I was thinking about like. Well, what about, what about um, Say a Little Prayer? I feel like that's an even 50-50 split for Dionne Warwick and Aretha Franklin. I don't know. Even Burt Bacharach said that Aretha did a better song than we did. Which is funny. I You know. And she only did it out of spite. <laughs> I know Burt Bacharach said that about Aretha's version. Mm-hmm, Burt Bacharach mm-hmm. kind of famously, he would change meters in songs. Like it would be like six, eight. Then he would do like a single measure that was like seven, eight. Right. And like, so the, so say a little prayer, like it, it skips a beat in a way that you're not expecting in a pop song. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying something about how Aretha, her vocal performance of that song, it kind of floats over that skipped beat. So that you almost don't feel that it happens. Mm-hmm. It's in the chorus that the beat drops a little bit. And in Dion Warwick's version, you definitely feel it. But because Aretha's kind of riffing over that part, you don't sense it so much in Aretha's version. Mm-hmm. But as part of my research, I was digging into Sissy Houston, Whitney Houston's mm-hmm. mother, right? Mm-hmm. Who was a very famous gospel singer. She was part of a very famous... Um, backing group called the sweet inspirations and they did stuff for like elvis and aretha but sissy houston also was it sounded like somewhat jealous of Dionne warwick's success sissy houston it seems Mm. like also felt like she was a better vocalist than Dionne warwick and there's an interview done with the remaining members of the sweet inspirations um, there's an interview with them where they mm-hmm. talk about Sissy Houston wanting to re-record Alfie because she <laughs> felt that she okay. should have been given that song. She felt that she could do a better job on that song. And she felt like she did do a better job on that song. And according to the other members of the Sweet Inspirations, Burt Bacharach hated it. They were saying that one, Alfie is a very hard song to sing musically. And that two, you never change the melody of a Burt Bacharach song. Mm-hmm. And Sissy Houston was just all over riffing it. and ad-libbing yeah. all over the place. Uh, so it's interesting when we talk about, say, A Little Prayer, that, like, you know, Burt Bacharach really liked Aretha's version, which is a little looser. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was kind of in the tour. I watched that. Um, there's, like, a PBS documentary about him, you know, and and they kind of go into, like, how difficult it is to sing his songs and how exacting he was. And, I mean, one of the tensions that I think will touch upon in talking about Dee Dee Warwick and that era of music is that going from the 50s into the 60s where R&B soul is starting to have crossover hits in the 60s we're coming out of an era where these blonde white backing singer groups were kind of like classically trained they were reading sheets of music they were being very precise in their harmonies very exact in their delivery and what soul R&B artists brought to the table in the 60s because of gospel background, because of church backgrounds, was vocal delivery that tapped more into emotion. It tapped more into what the lyrics were actually saying. It was kind of moving beyond the voice as a simple instrument into something that could emote in a much bigger way than Mm -hmm. people were potentially used to. Mm Mm-hmm. When it comes to like Burt Bacharach songs, I think you still have that aspect to his music and his songwriting that is so precise Mm -hmm. and so rooted in that more traditional aspect of music where I think that Dionne Warwick fared much better in that realm than others that tried to do more with it. Mm -hmm. The exception being Aretha Franklin. Yeah, yeah. We should also say at this point 
Dion Warwick and Dee Dee Warwick are different people. In case people didn't know, I'll get I'll get there. <laughs> I'll, uh, well, I guess I'm I'm starting this week, so we'll get there pretty quickly. Yeah. Well. Anyway. Anyway. That's that. Right, well, um, when we come I think back we can, from a break, I think we can. I think we can move into the main event. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. So as usual, everything that we're going to be talking about in today's show will be covered on our website, flopredeemer.com. You can find videos, you can find audio clips, you can find ephemera, you can find random words strung together into complete sentences by either Jason or I. It's mostly it's mostly Barry and he does a great job at it. Flopredeemer.com. <laughs> speaking, speaking of credit where credit is due. <laughs> <laughs> trying to diffuse, trying to diffuse. Yeah, I know. Um, also, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can email us at flopperdeemer at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. All right. So I <laughs> All right. So <laughs> I am starting this week. As per usual, I have a large cloud of thoughts. It's like a word cloud, but like yes. in a word document. This week, we've kind of shared our scripts with each other so that we kind of know where each other are going in advance of us going there. No promises that I'll stick to the script, though. So, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, this week, I'm talking about the song You're No Good. And I think that most people know this song because of the Linda Ronstadt version released in 1975. Is that the version that you know, Jason? It's yeah. I I did not know that it was a cover. Like okay. when you brought this up, I was like, "Wait a minute!" Because it changes. It's one of my favorite Linda Ronstadt songs. I think. Oh, it's one of my, okay. See, yeah. yeah, and that's the thing is like I only discovered this kind of digging around and looking at lists of cover songs. This one actually is not listed among most lists of cover songs, and I kind of was just going through the Wikipedia cloud mm. looking for stuff, and I was like, "What? What?" I actually, interestingly, so. So the version that I'm going to be talking about is the D.D. Warwick version from 1963. And originally I had been looking at D.D. Warwick because I was wondering if any of the D.D. Warwick songs that I already knew were covers, um, like Foolish Fool or I Who Have Nothing. But actually the Uh, versions that D.D. Warwick did of those songs, she was doing the cover. Like as we were talking about in the intro, in this period of time, like it wasn't uncommon for multiple versions of the same song to be released in quick succession, right? Mm -hmm. but then Mm -hmm. i found out like oh dd warwick reportedly recorded the original version of you're no good and it is the least successful version of this song Mm. um so it was popularized by linda ronstadt in 1975 i will fully disclose that my knowledge of linda ronstadt is so limited Mm. i actually forgot to even really research her in advance of recording this except that i mean most people know her as the singer of you're no good it was actually her first number one single um her other big hit was um blue bayou mm-hmm. my dad loved my dad loved um linda ronstadt yeah and she's got this interesting kind of cross genre appeal from like folk to rock to country she does like mexican stuff yeah she has like a latina heritage that mm-hmm. she kind of goes into later on um for me my knowledge of Linda Ronstadt was lim- limited to um, her appearance on an episode of The Simpsons, where she she appears in the episode uh, about Mr. Plow, where Homer and Barney operate rival snowplow businesses. And she comes on as Barney's friend to record a diss track against Homer. And it's like, <laughs> Mr. Plow is a loser, and I think he is a boozer. And then she does a Spanish version that's like, um, <laughs> Senor Plow no es macho, solamente un borracho, you know? And so that's my primary exposure to Linda Ronstadt. Not even as Jerry Brown's girlfriend at the time? Governor Jerry Brown? No, I see. When was that? <clears throat> In the 70s. In oh, the 70s. 70s. Okay. No. See, I don't know. I mean, okay. So then the other thing mm-hmm. that I know about Linda Ronstadt is that she uh, was notoriously noted 
for performing in Sun City pre-apartheid, uh, like during apartheid. Mm-hmm, 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 and this mm-hmm. is something that I know only because I listened to Howard Stern when I was in middle school. Mm. And Howard Stern hated Linda Ronstadt. And one of the things he would always talk about was that Linda Ronstadt broke, she broke the boycott of South Africa, right? Like mm-hmm. the United Nations had called upon people um, to people to boycott South Africa because of apartheid. And um, this luxury resort in South Africa called Sun City was open and they were trying to woo lots of like big name performers with like lots of money and luxury to perform there. And Linda Ronstadt was among them. Um, And so I remember at the time, this would be like late 80s, early 90s, I think, or mid, mid 80s maybe that people were calling for a boycott against Linda Ronstadt for that. But notably, like, I mean, Dolly Parton performed in Sun City. Queen performed in Sun City. Like, a lot of people broke the boycott. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, during, and then eventually she... Apartheid. Eventually she was boycotted by conservatives because she came out against Trump, like, in her later years. Or not yeah. Trump, sorry, Bush. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Anyway, the, the thing that I know the least about Linda Ronstadt is her music. <laughs> But okay. so I was. I, but, she like, did somewhere out there with James Ingram from uh, American Tale. Somewhere out there, you know okay. the. You don't know that song? I do. I, yeah, I know. I, you know, I don't think I. I don't think I ever saw American Tale. I mean, your emotions are intact, I guess, because that movie devastated me. No, I, I mean, had so many children. Those those were like the sad Disney movies. They were like the sad, the Don Bluth movies, Land Before oh, Time, yeah. American oh, yeah, Tale, yeah. All Dogs Go to Heaven. They really they were wanted just to prepare young people children. for emotional... For death and family separation. Yeah, they don't want to sugarcoat life. Um, oh, so Linda Ronstadt, <laughs> <laughs> popularly known for You're No Good, Blue Bayou. She also sang the original version of Different Drum um, by the Stone Ponies. Oh, I don't know that song. You don't? No, you do know this song. Probably. It's a you and I da, to the beat of a different drum. Nope. Nope. What? Not ring. Not not, uh, not ringing a bell. <sighs> that song is uh, so I good. Look it up. It, Look. No, you know where? You know what I'll do? Maybe you I'll don't go know, to our website, floppertiever.com and yeah, we'll post it there. It was <laughs> actually. I. I mean, I didn't know. Speaking of covers, like because we were mm-hmm. we were talking about covers, different drum was later covered by Susanna Hoffs and Matthew Sweet in like the 2000s. But Linda Ronstadt sings the original version of that. But it was originally actually written by Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. Huh. Who was, yeah, it was written yeah. before he was a monkey. But I thought that huh. was interesting. I just was like, oh, Mike Nesmith. That's a name I haven't seen in a couple decades. So this song was popularized by Linda Ronstadt. In 1963, Dee Dee Warwick um, records this. So now we can get into like, who is Dee Dee Warwick? What are her origins? Dee Dee Warwick is the younger sister of Dionne Warwick, who is more popularly known. She is the one who had kind of the big breakout success throughout the 60s um, with her collaborations with Burt Bacharach and Hal David. So they were doing... um, like say a little prayer for you. Like we were talking about um, her first single with Burt Backrock was don't make me over. Mm. Um, she did anyone who had a heart walk on by. Do you know the way to San Jose promises promises? Um, I'll never love this way again. Um, I feel like in the modern era, a lot of those songs kind of came to prominence for a lot of younger people because they were doing like Burt Backrock nights on American Idol back in the day yeah and that's yeah, where a that lot of sense. a lot of those songs were kind of reintroduced like i had never really heard like um i'll never love this way again and i think until american idol like, I, that I became a that, big a big deal well i think what's interesting you know in 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 thinking about you know the difference between dion and Dee, Dee and and dion really and many other i guess black singers of the era was she wasn't doing that Motown or soul sound. It was a very, yeah. Burt Bacharach is like a, like to your point earlier, it's uh, almost more traditional, but like yeah. in, it had that like sixties mod spin on it, but it was like, you know, like it was, d- yeah, not it was soul. a little, yeah. I mean, notably Dion Warwick, she entered college to study music. Mm. So she is like more of, she leans more towards like the 
classically trained, classically educated yeah. vocalists. And that's one of the things that's noted about her in terms of why Burt Bacharach kind of um, set his eyes on her was that he heard a voice from her, but he also heard a level of musical training that could field the types of melodies that he was writing, which were a little bit more musically complex and um, maybe couldn't be as like intuitively sung mm -hmm. in the way that I think it seems like a lot of people brought up in like the gospel and church tradition were trained to sing, which was very mm -hmm. much from the heart and very much by ear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Dionne Warwick, um, if you're a little bit younger or older at this point, I don't know. You might also know Dionne Warwick from That's What Friends Are For, mm -hmm. which was a benefit for AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research, in 1985. And then also in 1985 was We Are the World, which Dionne Warwick featured very prominently in. And the Psychic Friends Network. Yes, that's the that's the other notable touch point for Dionne Warwick's life is that... Um, she in the nineties involved herself in a, a very lucrative series of infomercials for the psychic friends network. She earned like <laughs> millions of dollars for that. But I think also like a lot of ridicule. Yeah. Like notably yeah. Stacy Dash's character in clueless is named Dion and uh, Alicia Silverstone is Cher. And they note in that movie, like, Oh, we're both named after singers who now do infomercials because in the nineties, <laughs> it was such a target yeah. of ridicule that it was yeah. so weird yeah. that Cher and Dion Warwick were doing these things. Yeah. Um, Oh, did you know that for a short time, Dionne Warwick started spelling her name with an E? Like, she started spelling Warwick with an E at the end because astrologically, like, her astrological advisor told her that her career would benefit from adding an E. You know, I don't remember that. I remember being confused if it was Warwick or Warwick. And, like, there were some things at that time where it was, like, right? So Didn't it, like, change? When, when Don't Make Me Over comes out, when they're pressing mm -hmm. the singles for that, there is a reportedly there's a typo. Her name is Dion Warwick, W A R R I C K, mm -hmm. but there's a typo on her record that changes mm -hmm. her name to Warwick, W A R W I C K, and she just decided to stick with it. So, so Dee Dee adopted that same typo. Dee Dee also adopted the typo. Interesting. I mean, it's. I mean, you know, it. it it's probably nice to be able to separate your actual identity from like your stage identity in that way, even if by accident, I guess in this age of Googling, like if you had a bunch of shitty stuff about yourself under the name Dion Warwick, no one would know because you're Dion Warwick. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, anyway, so, so Dee Dee never finds this level of success as a solo performer. Dee Dee and Dion, they actually both start out together as uh, gospel singers in a backing group called um, the Drinkards, the Drinkard Singers. And this is their association also with um, Whitney Houston's family. So um, Dion and Dee Dee are Whitney Houston's cousins. And then Whitney Houston's mother, Sissy Houston, is uh, Dee Dee and Dion's aunt through like the Drinkard family. You need like a diagram to see this family tree. <laughs> yeah. But basically yeah, like yeah, yeah. the Drinkard family, including like Sissy Houston and Dion and Dee Dee Warwick, like they had a, a like, kind of like a family gospel singing group throughout like the fifties and into the sixties and moving into the sixties, they were highly sought after as like this backing vocal group, you know, kind of like um, I actually rewatched 20 feet from stardom this week. Cause I was, I was mm. thinking a lot about, oh, these these prominent groups of backing singers that were kind of going around to all the different acts that were intensifying the soul aspect of a lot of 60s music in that time. And where 20 Feet from Stardom kind of focuses on um, Darlene Love and the Blossoms mm -hmm. as pioneering that on the West Coast. Um, Sissy Houston and the Gospelers slash the Drinkard Singers later to become the sweet inspirations. They were kind of that equivalent on the East coast. So they were yeah. operating out of New York and, you know, they were recording with Aretha Franklin. They were the backing singers on Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl. Later after Dee Dee and Dion left, they were featured with like Jimi Hendrix, Dusty Springfield. They famously went on tour with like Elvis Presley and he would often introduce them on stage as um, the sweet inspirations. Hmm. So 
Dee comes out of um, the Drinkard Singers and the mm-hmm. Gospel Airs. Dion leaves first to pursue her solo career. She's kind of lifted from obscurity by Burt Bacharach. And a couple years later, Dee Dee tries her hand at recording solo work. So she actually leaves the group in 1965. And though she is popularly less known than Dionne Warwick, I think that in circles of like soul R&B 60s music music fans she's actually very highly regarded as like Mm. potentially a better singer than Dionne Warwick was is yeah you know I I can Um, see it I love her voice I myself had never actually heard of Dee Dee Warwick until um the season of American Idol that Jordan Sparks won Jordan Sparks does a cover of I Who Have Nothing which was popularized in the United States by Tom Jones and I started kind of searching around for versions of that song. And then Dee Dee Warwick actually has like a really spectacular version of I Who Have Nothing. And that really, that song really wasn't a big hit for her at all. No. You know? Well, you know, it's, it, yeah, I, I know that version because of you and Davey. Davey had, was listening to it or maybe you were. Yeah. But um, she famously goes, she's like one of the only ones who says, whilst I. <laughs> right? Like I think in that song, like everyone uh, no one else says whilst, which is, it sticks out to me because yeah. I really love it. Like just stylistically, like if you think about like who Dee Dee Work is, like as a soul singer, like there's this sort of like, kind of like Dion, this sort of classicism, like classical, there's like a formality sometimes in the delivery, like a, um, okay. I don't know how to say it. like her, the vocabulary, like it's just like, like, like she's, she's, in the middle of this song saying, whilst I, like, it's I mean, a, like, what I always liked regalness, about, I guess a regalness, regalness. Though. That's interesting. I, I, think I so. wouldn't think of that because I, I listen to Dee Dee Warwick's voice, especially in comparison to Dion Warwick's voice and think about how guttural and deep and grungy her like, yeah, voice is. Yeah. I guess, especially I guess compared to Dion. Yeah. I, I would say, whereas, Dion is like the the undeniable sort of queen in that sense, like maybe in that family. Mm-hmm. I can hear the lineage vocally, like they're different, like in in just maybe the the personality, like the personality who's carrying these these songs. The mm-hmm. voice is more guttural, but it comes from a very like to your point earlier, like with the training and the things that they had, like from a from a similar sort of yeah regard well, for themselves if that but makes i sense. think that that's the thing is that i actually could find no evidence that Didi ever received the training that dion huh. did i think because yeah. dion was older and by the time she was singing all those backing tracks she was already in college but uh. Didi was a teenager hmm. i don't think that Didi actually ever received the type of classical training that dion did um but to your point about the enunciation, and maybe that's like a family affect thing, because yeah. to contrast Dee Dee against Sissy Houston, Sissy Houston ha- did have a very loose, free delivery mm-hmm. of her vocal performance, where you can definitely hear that Dee Dee and Dion have like a familial resemblance yeah. to each yeah. other. And what's interesting, if you take that even further, is I wouldn't characterize Whitney Houston, Cece's daughter, as having a loose delivery, it's much more like Dion's. They talk a little bit about Whitney taking inspiration a little bit more from Dion mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. her performance felt in terms of her performance style, even in terms of the way that she stood on stage and carried her say. I was self. gonna say she's very still and like with her arms like out in those very like yeah thin sheath dresses that just like. Or like a column, like very Dion as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That makes sense. Interesting. So for most people in popular music, I think that Dee Dee Warwick is largely lost. You know, Mm -hmm. some of her biggest hits are songs like... Uh, Foolish Fool. She does I Want to Be With You. She actually does a great version of um, Suspicious Minds. Hmm. So she oh, covers yes. she covers Elvis and she does Suspicious Minds. And um, 
they actually used that her version of that song on the HBO series um, Vinyl. Mm. I think that's how some people come to her too. Yeah. And it's actually like a really, really good version. And I think that... And I, and I think that that will take me into like this song, why I like Dee Dee Warwick's version, what I like about her voice versus the other versions of this song is that a lot of her songs, the ones that were hits for her, they deal with sadness. They deal mm-hmm. with, um, what was it that you called Sam Smith? Mopey. Mopey They're yes. all a little bit mopey. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have this feeling like in as much as you can hear Dionne Warwick smiling, Dionne Warwick has those giant teeth. As much as you can hear Dionne Warwick smiling through all of her Burt Bacharach songs, you can hear Dee Dee Warwick just frowning (laughs) through a lot of these songs that are, I mean, that are meant to make you feel that way. Mm -hmm. You know, foolish fool. um, You know, she's talking about how foolish you need to be to think about going back to this no good man. She sings, she sings a lot of like no good man kind of songs, Mm -hmm. including you're no good. So you're no good is, uh, originally written by Clint Ballard. And then it's produced by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Famous. Kind of Clint Ballard. He wrote a song called the game of love. That was his other big hit. Mm. I didn't recognize this. I didn't recognize the title of the song, but when I listened to it, I was like, oh yeah, this is one of those songs that you know and you don't know who yeah. it's by or what it is. Yeah. Um, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, they did like, um, they did Hound Dog. Mm-hmm. Very famously originally recorded by a black artist, Big Mama Thornton, and then given to Elvis who popularized it. They did Jailhouse Rock. They did Stand By Me and they did like uh, Love Potion Number 9. Uh, notably, they did a lot of their early recordings um, with Phil Spector. Phil Spector started out playing guitars for them during their sessions. And it's hmm. noted that Phil Spector, um, who, who does like the wall of sound, right? He was influenced during those sessions to develop his production style that would come up, you know, throughout the sixties. Again, like this is a no good man in the no good man genre of songs. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically this woman telling off this dude basically saying like you know you left scars in me you're no good but also in the second verse flipping that around on herself and basically saying you know like i left a really good man to be with you and i don't blame that man if he tells me that i'm no good it taps into that emotional kind of downtrodden dirge type of uh-huh. feeling uh-huh. that I think that Dee Dee Warwick's voice was made for. Her mm. voice is notably deeper than Dionne Warwick's voice. It has a little bit more grit to it. It just, you can feel the sadness when she's singing. And I think that that's something that I like about her vocal performance style throughout all of her songs. She has a huge catalog of stuff that's available digitally now. Like a lot of her recordings were never really released but um, I think as her, as the labels that she was recording for kind of got absorbed into major labels and they, um, they gained ownership over the rights to all of her music, a lot of her recordings are, comp- uh, are put into compilations mm. and then released digitally now. So you listen to her whole oeuvre of music and it's her voice just, there's something magical about it, you know? <laughs> I want to talk a a little bit about the tension between soulful voices and poppy voices in that era. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perhaps exemplified by Dee Dee versus Dionne Warwick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, but also, so in this, in the same year, this song is covered by a different artist, another black artist named Betty Everett. Betty Everett is maybe most popularly known as the singer of the Shoop Shoop song. And, she has she has minor success with the song, but she has greater success than Dee Dee has with this song in the same year. And notably, Betty Everett's voice is notably sweeter. She has more of what I would consider like a songbird voice, you know? So when she's singing the chorus of You're No Good, it's 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 a little dissonant because the message is so critical, but her tone is so sweet. Mm. And this is actually something that I feel about the Linda Ronstadt version as well, is that by comparison, well, by comparison, by comparison to Dee Dee Warwick's version, Dee Dee Warwick is pissed. Linda Ronstadt 
I mean, I know that she is like kind of a rock icon, but there is like an essential sweetness to Linda Ronstadt's voice. I think. Uh, 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 Yes, I think so. I think so. That any, any anger or grit that she put into her voice was, she had to push for that. That Dee Dee Warwick had naturally. That she had naturally. And I think Linda Ronstadt's take on it is kind of like, you're no good and I love it. That that's kind of the huh. that's I, I feel it's like well yeah like you're no good like you know like a bad boy like I, that's that's kind of how I mean I do feel like she's kind of I I do feel like she's upset right like yeah. she's I feel like it's kind of a diss but like I also feel like it's there's a there's a sexiness there's a sexiness that comes that comes through in her voice that changes everything for me <laughs> <laughs> well yeah yeah so I mean you know this song is notably covered in in a more pop vocal mm-hmm. in the same era, which I think is interesting because another song that Dee Dee Warwick originally, originally records is um, I'm going to make you love me, mm-hmm. which is later a larger success for the Supremes. And I think that the Supremes are notable for early on the switcheroo that they did where Florence Ballard was originally the lead of the Supremes, but Barry Gordy felt that Diana Ross had a better voice to kind of mainstream market the Supremes to mm-hmm. pop audiences. Mm-hmm. And so Diana Ross famously takes the helm and re-records, you know, another song by Dee Dee Warwick and then eclipses the original with a mainstream pop version of that song. Mm-hmm. So that got me thinking a lot about the history of cover songs. Initially, I was thinking a lot about the movie musical versions of Dreamgirls and Hairspray. Did I talk to you about this? No. That the music, the the movie musical versions of Dreamgirls and Hairspray, they both touch upon this idea that in the 60s, there was a practice of, a rather nefarious practice of re-recording these songs in a different style in a more pop oriented mainstream yeah. style in an attempt to cover up the original versions of these songs. So like in the hairspray movie musical, the number um, new girl in town, they staged that number so that they cut back and forth between um, the black group, the black girl group singing that song at Motormouth Maybell's show. But then simultaneously Amber and her white girl group are singing mm-hmm. that song on like the main stage of the Courtney Collins show. Mm-hmm. And they talk about, you know, how there is that slightly nefarious background to these cover versions. And um, in dream girls, um, the number uh, one night only. Mm-hmm. So in the movie musical dream girls, Effie records the song one night only as this like kind of soulful slow jam and um, Curtis, played by Jamie Foxx, sees an opportunity to steal this song, re-record it very quickly in a disco style for Dina to record. And they, rec- re- they re- record and release this song and it completely eclipses Effie's attempt at a comeback. Mm-hmm. You know, And I was kind of looking at the Dina, history. played by Beyonce. Beyonce, yeah, that, that woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, she wasn't nominated for nothing. Oh wait, did she get a She was nominated, she lost. Oh, okay. Well did you have to do listen? Oh. Oh yeah. The history of these cover songs in that in that lens. Like I was looking into it and um you know, it seems like in that era it wasn't uncommon for these songs to be recorded and re-recorded over and over again. Sometimes it would be like a regional thing, right? Like in this period of time, um, local markets would kind of have their own independent record labels. And then when they saw a song hitting in a certain city, they would quickly try to re-record it and release it within a couple of weeks so that maybe there would be a little bit of confusion for local markets when you're going to your local record store and seeing, you're like, oh, where's this song that I'm looking for? I'm looking for this song, You're No Good. And you're in Chicago, you know, where Betty Everett's from. And they're like, oh yeah, here, here, it's this one, right? You know, because there wasn't, there wasn't a strict control over that. And as I understand it, that may still apply that in the United States, like a song, a rights holder for a song cannot prevent an artist from covering their music. 
Mm-hmm. Once the song has been re- once the song has been recorded and released for the first time, that after that, anyone that wants to cover it can cover it and then like get like a mechanical license. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a publisher. I'm not nothing. But mm-hmm. I was trying to understand the legality of like because you see it even on YouTube that a lot of people will just cover songs and put them out there, mm-hmm. right? And apparently, mm-hmm. like that's one of the things that um, allowed this to kind of proliferate and happen throughout the '60s is that. Not only was there no, um, there was no stopping people from putting out these covers, but also it was it was rather beneficial. It was rather beneficial to the songwriters who would collect royalties on any version of a song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So sometimes it was deployed as a strategic move, where like, um, the same songwriter would intentionally record a soul R and B version and then a country version of the same song to release at the same time, just to maximize the number of sales they could get in a particular period of time. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also, and leaning into maybe some of the more nefarious aspects of this, there was the aspect of, um, soul R and B being a specifically black type of music that white audiences would not purchase. Mm-hmm. And so I think more so in the fifties, maybe, you have songs that are recorded as R&B songs and then, um, or soul songs, and then are almost immediately re-recorded by a white group. The one song that comes to my mind is the song Shaboom, hmm. which was Life originally- Life Could Be a Dream? Yeah. So that song was originally recorded by the chords, but then it was almost immediately recorded by um, some other group. The one that we know. The one that you know, the one that's featured mm-hmm. in the beginning of Clue the movie, mm-hmm. sung by a white group with like a, a very strangely corny, it's it's a cornier production, the more popular one. It's a very doo-wop. It's a... It's yeah, a but there's like a, ti- there's like a timpani, there's like a timpani boing <laughs> in the middle of it. Um, the chords version, I think, is musically superior, but the remake is actually the one that more people know because it was recorded by a white group that was then deployed to a larger group of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's only over the course of the 50s that white audiences, especially white teenagers growing up in the 50s, feel comfortable or want to purchase music recorded by black artists. And -hmm. I think that that sets the stage for the 60s where you start to have the soul and R&B black artists crossing over into pop music and then you also have, like in Dreamgirls, you have Black artists covering other Black artists in a more pop style in order to capitalize on the success of that song. So I think that I see a through line with D.D. Warwick in that regard. That one of the reasons that I don't think D.D. Warwick does that well, popularly, is because she didn't have the type of pop voice that mainstream consumers of music or mainstream record labels wanted to release. Mm. I can't think of very many exceptions that had the huge breakthrough success, but one of the things that Dee Dee Warwick noted about her career was that um, throughout like the late 60s, she was signed to Atco Records, which was part of like the Atlantic family of record companies. And she always felt like they didn't put a lot of attention into her because she was kind of third fiddle to Aretha mm. Franklin and then mm-hmm. Roberta Flack. Mm. And after all of the attention you know, put into those two artists in terms of their success, there was no energy left to put into her. There were no songs left to give to her. And so she really felt like she had been kind of left out, you know? And so that's, it's, it's, it's kind of sad because I think that there is something distinctive about her voice. Again, she should just be singing dirges, dirges, (laughs) bring the dirge back. Funeral, funereal dirge, just grinding, sad music, suffering. Is she, is she still alive? No. Okay. So. Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to jump ahead. I just. Oh I, no! I just no, sure. no, no! I mean, I don't. 
I'm 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 loosey goosey about this. Um, so Dee Dee Warwick died in 2008. Okay. Um, one thing that I didn't know about Dee Dee Warwick, and this is some, this is like a revelation that's fairly recent. Like I hadn't really looked into Dee Dee Warwick that frequently, right? But in researching this, there was a new revelation about her that I had never heard before. One is that she was a lesbian. Hmm. But the second thing, and this is something that I'm going to have a little bit of hesitancy or difficulty talking about, is that in the 2018 documentary about Whitney Houston, um, in which they first disclosed that she was a lesbian, they also make the claim that Dee Dee Warwick molested her cousins, um, Whitney Houston and Whitney Houston's older half-brother, Gary Garland. Gary Garland Houston now. And this is something that I wanted to talk about really quickly at the end of this segment because it brings up the issue of like, how do we deal with celebrities who have these kinds of um, sex scandals against them in terms of how we perceive their music moving forward or how we advocate for their music moving forward? And also, what does it mean when these allegations only come to light after they're they've passed, you know, mm. I think about how we deal with Michael Jackson's music in the aftermath of the allegations that came out against him. Um, R. Kelly, how do we deal with his music in the aftermath of that? I got rid of that CD. I exactly like, um, you know, and then when we think about um, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, you know. Again, I think we've talked about it a little bit in the past about like separating the art from the artist and what the best way is to do that or how we deal with that. And in that sense, like, do I feel comfortable driving people towards Dee Dee Warwick's music? So to give a little bit of context... This allegation comes out in the 2018 documentary about Whitney Houston. It's notably um, a documentary that has been sanctioned by the estate of Whitney Houston. Um, so it, it has the participation of basically everyone in Whitney's circle except for Robin Crawford. It seems like the family really always hated Robin Crawford, who was um, rumored to be uh, Whitney's lesbian lover throughout her life. So in the documentary, Gary Garland Houston, who is Whitney's older half-brother, he first makes the accusation or he he recounts his story that as a young child, he was molested by a female relative and that Whitney was as well. And this story is corroborated then by two other people in Whitney Houston's circle. One was... Um, a woman named Mary Jones, who was her assistant for a time and was kind of familiarly referred to as Aunt Mary. And um, the other corroborating source is Gary Garland Houston's wife, uh, Pat Houston. And in that segment, it's revealed that the female relative they are referring to is Dee Dee Warwick. After the documentary comes out, Different media outlets pick up on this story. Sissy Houston comes out saying that she doesn't think it's true. Despite having participated in the documentary, but like she says that she doesn't, you know, that it sounds terrible, but, you know, she doesn't believe that that happened. Um, Dionne Warwick comes out and says like, basically like, how dare they bring these accusations against a woman that is no longer alive to defend herself against these accusations. Mm -hmm. And also... Gary Garland Houston, he makes his accusation on behalf of himself, but also he makes an accusation on behalf of Whitney, mm -hmm. who herself is no longer there to yeah, make this to accusation herself. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have the two other sources that say that, well, no, Whitney, Whitney said this to me, you know? So yeah, I, 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 I kind of took a pause in exploring that because I was like, yeah, I don't know how to feel about this because, you know, I don't want to question 
the firsthand account of her half-brother saying that this happened to him, right? Mm -hmm. But I also feel conflicted because Dee Dee Warwick is not here to defend herself against these allegations. You know, I was doing digging and this really kind of polarized people in their perception of everything, right? You look at a lot of Dee Dee Warwick's like YouTube videos now and the comments are very much like Dee Dee Warwick was a child rapist. But then on the other side, it's polarized people into also being like, consider the source here that like Mm -hmm. Gary Garland Houston and Pat Houston, two of the sources for this information, they are the executors of the estate of Whitney Houston. And there is the feeling or suspicion that the estate of Whitney Houston is only interested in continuing to make money off of the name of Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. All the things, the hologram that was going to go on a world tour. Of yeah, Houston, yeah, yeah. All that stuff. There's always been the rumors, suspicions, the ideas that perhaps the estate, perhaps her family does not have, has not always had her best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. And that part of preserving the legacy of Whitney Houston is intertwined with preserving the Houston family themselves. Because it's interesting, there's actually like Burt Bacharach internet forums. And I mean, people, that makes are, sense, I people are very fervently posting to Burt Bacharach internet forums. And, you know, people on there, they're very pro Dion Warwick, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And therefore, by association, they believe Dion Warwick and they believe in Dee Dee Warwick. But, you know, they, they point out to- the things about the Houston family and how they've tried to deflect blame about the state of Whitney Houston's life, the things that troubled her and the things that ultimately led to her death. Cause that's always been a question is always kind of like Whitney Houston had this squeaky clean image up to a certain point. And then when things started surfacing about her that were dark and then ultimately led to her death, I think it's always been in the public mind of like, well, what, what happened there? Like, why, why was that? You know? Mm-hmm. And I have to admit that like, I, I feel that suspicion too, mm-hmm. but again, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I, it's it's interesting. I mean, like you know, being a lifelong fan of Whitney Houston and and, and kind of you know reading about this and both in real time and then after and when some of these allegations came out, it's you know I do have my own feelings about the family too that have just you know, come out over time. Like just, I don't know. They, they're the self-preservationist side of that. And, and yeah. the, the, the way in which, you know, I don't know, at least, at least from most of the reports and even from, from the varying documentaries and interviews that are with the family, like no one was looking out for Whitney at all. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always sort of been that from the very beginning where yeah. it was, you know, the, these, these things are in place and you're like, okay, well, so what, what angle does this have now? Because, you know, do, is this, is this born out of, you know, the, the sense that, you know, if Dee, Dee was a lesbian, we know how the family feels about Whitney's rumored lesbianism. We know how much they hate Robin. Yeah. We know how much, you know, you know, all of those things. And you're like, okay, so are these, confl- are these, are, is there some aspect in there? Yeah. And I think that that was one thing that made me really uncomfortable about the story itself was that they were, they seemed to be tying together Dee Dee Warwick's suspected or confirmed lesbianism with her being a child molester. Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah, and that's what makes me, feels squeaky and i liked this documentary i would recommend seeing it but one i do feel like the director's mission the story that he was trying to dig into with everything was the idea of what was the trauma that led to whitney being so troubled as an adult i think he Mm -hmm. was digging for that Mm -hmm. because there's parts where he is off camera asking different family members like, well, what was, what was her childhood? Like what happened in her childhood? And a lot of people are really defensive about being like, no, her, her childhood was great. You know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like there's that aspect to it, that there is a little bit of like an attempt to make this into trauma porn. Yeah. But I think what's revealed through the interviews is very telling because there is that aspect where, um, there's a general discomfort throughout the dis- 
there's a general discomfort throughout the documentary with the idea that Whitney Houston was potentially um, bisexual. Mm-hmm. That by like her hairstylist account, Whitney Houston just loved sex, could not get mm-hmm. enough sex. And that um, Ricky Minor, I think he says in the documentary that he believes that, you know, if Whitney were around today, she would identify as like sexually fluid. Mm-hmm. That she just kind of loved who she loved and she wanted to be with who she wanted to be with, whether they were a man or a woman. But from her family, you definitely get the sense that like there's some rampant homophobia there. Yeah. And, and and that's, I guess that's what I was going getting at. Like it's clear from all of the other accounts. Her brother is like, I don't want to talk about Robin Crawford. She's nasty. She was trying to, you know, take Whitney down this path. It's mm-hmm. disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that to appear in the same segment as Whitney's childhood trauma of allegedly being molested by her cousin, her female cousin, it who happens to be a lesbian it left more it left a lot more questions for me than it answered you know mm-hmm. there's a there there's so much to unpack with the 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 Houston family more more than we have time to go into but um i wanted to bring that up because i think it is relevant in terms of you know, on a case by case basis, on an individual basis, do you want to listen to this song? I I feel like Dee Dee Warwick's voice is so great. I don't know if I can wholeheartedly say like, yes, you should you should support her. But again, she is gone. She cannot respond to the allegations against her. She's not here to face the allegations. I think that's that's what leaves it so troubling and so unresolved. Is like we'll never know, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Because again, like when it does come to like R. Kelly, I, mm-hmm. I don't fuck with R. Kelly anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, even Chris Michael Jackson, even Michael Jackson. Yeah. I, I feel uneasy listening to Michael Jackson music now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get the same joy out of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all colored by those experiences. And um, unfortunately, this may be the case for Dee Dee Warwick. Maybe we don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, I don't know. And I, I feel like, yes, you know, it's so believe people it's when so, they say these things, but yeah. you believe people when they say this has happened to them. Yeah. Um, That's the main thing. There is are like, so many, but there are so many questions about this, the, the source of this. Yeah. That, that make me, and just that history, like you said, of just sort of like this sense of homophobia on the part of the family, particularly the homophobia, the sense of, trying to profit off of the memory of Whitney Houston Mm -hmm. because these are the same people that were, you know, living off of her blood, sweat and tears for the entire time that she was alive. Mm -hmm. You know, the same people that were during that period of time also enabling her, Mm -hmm. you know, in as much as you have a lot of the voices in, in that documentary talking about how, you know, Whitney was so wild behind the scenes, you know, you have like an uncle of hers saying that, for her 16th birthday, he gave her a bag of weed and a bump of mm-hmm. Coke. Mm-hmm. Her brother, who was kind of like part of her tour personnel during that whole time, it was his job to score her cocaine in whatever city they were in. He he was so proud of the fact that he was able to score cocaine for her in Japan, where um, I believe most Japanese people would believe that drugs don't actually, ex- actually exist in Japan because like the criminal... <laughs> like the criminal consequences are so severe for drugs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And then interestingly, I, I mean, there's always that idea that Bobby Brown was a bad influence on Whitney Houston, that he was the bad boy, that he was, he was the trauma mm-hmm. that really brought Whitney down. Um, in this documentary, um, Whitney Houston's, uh, her other brother, not Gary Garland, he says that um, Bobby Brown was a lightweight. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's the sense you get, right? That, like, that he and he, that yeah. that Whitney and her brother, they could do drugs constantly, day and night, and function, but that Bobby Brown could not, and that so in that sense, it's like Whitney Houston was the bad influence. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's it, it. It makes it. I mean, speaking of speaking of things to listen to, like making it hard to listen to. It's hard for me now to listen to Whitney Houston. 
because so many of those things that like, I mean, she's one of my favorite singers, um, but there's so much darkness around the story, so much darkness yeah. around her life, so much darkness around how her life ended and then how it also took down her daughter. Like, oh it, God, yeah. It just That's- makes, I can't, I can't. And so like, you know, for Dee Dee Warwick to also be part of this and like, it's just, it's, it's sad. Like I, I don't get the same enjoyment listening to Whitney as yeah. I did. Yeah. I was before. revisiting. I mean, as a whole tangent, I was revisiting a lot of Whitney songs and listening back to them and thinking like, Oh, like this is when, you know, her drug problems were really becoming apparent, you know? Uh-huh. By way of a huge tangent, by the way, um, the TV series smash star starring, uh, uh-huh. Catherine McPhee and, Deborah Messing, uh-huh. um, Angelica Houston. That became available for streaming uh, yeah. this week on IMDb TV. I started rewatching it, and I'm drawing a connection here, which is that um, when I was watching the Whitney documentary, it was just such a downer because you know where it's going. Yeah, you know that it ends with her death, and then subsequently Bobby Christina's death, and that you know that's mm-hmm. it. And I was not ready for that. And I was rewatching Smash this week. And for those people that don't know, the Smash Smash was a television series where they were uh, workshopping a Broadway musical based on the life of Marilyn Monroe. And one of the things that happens in season one of that show is that they produce this musical um, about Marilyn Monroe's life and they preview it in Boston. And at the very end, the final number, Marilyn Monroe dies in her bed. And that's the end of the show. And the audience does not clap. And it takes like, and then someone in the back, basically with the crew has to like start clapping so that the audience knows to clap. And they realize like, what do you do about a story where you know it has to end with the main character dying? Yeah. But to get people to like rally and feel lifted by the story that you just told, right? Mm-hmm. And in and in the TV series Smash, they add this extra number where not the ghost of Marilyn Monroe, but basically they reprise Marilyn Monroe in the flesh to sing one last kind of torch song about like what you should have taken away from the life of Marilyn Monroe, which is very effective. I cried. Um, but that's actually what I felt like the documentary about Whitney Houston needed because it ends and I just felt gutted. And I was like... Uh, you know, unfortunately, I need that Whitney yeah. hologram to come yeah. and like sing. Well, to me no, or you don't. Yet. How dare you? You get that out of your mouth. <laughs> no, uh, dear God, dear God, no. Like, and and if there's anything we know, her family is not the family that's going to put together that uplifting. Oh, they're they're so sour grapes. That family. Yeah, no, and that's what I mean. Like, she's not going to get that. And anyway, so I, you know. Anyway, um, we went we went way off course there. <laughs> You're no good. <laughs> I am no good at telling stories about Dee Dee Warwick. They're actually, yeah, I'm no good at telling stories about Dee Dee Warwick, but um, given everything that I've said, if you feel like Dee Dee Warwick warrants a listen, I highly suggest just hearing her voice or more so than that, digging into like a lot of these songs that were originally soul songs that mm. were popularized as pop songs. Because yeah, hear their originals. to hear their origins... And to realize that the reason these didn't reach people's ears is because soul R&B music sung by black people was not considered palatable at the time that they were recorded. Uh And then to hear how amazing the songs actually are and hearing how great these vocals are across the genre, Mm -hmm. I think it's something that is worth digging into. And I think in addition to the D.D. Warwick stuff, I think for this week, I'll also pull in some stuff um, from other artists that suffered this same fate in the era in a way to mitigate this kind of third act that I introduced to this story. Mm. Um, so that's it. I think it's a, yeah, I think it's great. And we'll talk about it more in mind, but just, I think yeah. we live in an age of information. And so, you know, you have no excuse for not <laughs> knowing some of these things like you can there you can look them up like and i think we owe it to the people that we love and and i i also think it's it's great the journey of discovery to like be like oh there's another version of this song like i had no idea and totally how many times have we done that in the past you know and and 
the new version that you or the the version that you've just discovered might become your favorite. Yeah. And we'll see you guys next week. We'll see you next week. Uh, special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. As we've mentioned multiple times, songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Um, in many cases, they're also posted to our socials. So remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And check us out on social at Flop Redeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash Flop Redeemer. 